Welcome to the Nanalyze podcast. We are a boutique media and research firm specializing in disruptive innovation. Visit nanalyze.com for more details. Investing in Indian stocks might sound compelling on paper, but there are a lot of systemic risks associated with investing in India that aren't so obvious on the tin. We're going to talk about those today. We're also going to talk about how much to invest in India, how you might invest in Indian stocks without getting screwed, and we'll take a look at the best Indian ETFs. So Juan here is one of many paying subscribers who have asked for us to cover India, and he emailed us several days ago, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to create some customer delight, so I put down what I was doing and put together this deck, and he says here, Uh, He wants to gain exposure to India because he likes the long-term growth potential. We'll talk about that. And he doesn't like the risks associated with individual Indian stocks. Absolutely. He says, what ETFs or other ways to get exposure to the market would you recommend? His time horizon is roughly 40 to 50 years, and he's looking to dollar cost average. So a fairly astute investor here asking some great questions. Now, this presentation isn't just for foreigners, for calling all Indians to watch this because uh, it goes back to the old adage, sell to the rich, live with the poor, sell to the poor, live with the rich. Well, the same holds true for stock scams. And our research has shown, even before I cracked a book to do this presentation, there's an exceptional amount of individuals interested in targeting Indian investors for Uh, for malicious reasons. So most of the people that invest in India retail investors can't afford to lose what they've worked so hard to save. So this presentation is for our Indian friends as well as for the Westerners that watch our channel. So there's an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to Indian scams. Here I've just pulled up 2015 and they uh, run the gamut. It's quite remarkable and we're mainly interested in Uh, scams related to investing in stocks. So there are a number of articles out there uh, describing the top Indian stock market scams. So they're all um, trying to rank these and figure out which the worst ones were. And they're just atrocious. And what you'll notice when you start reading through these, so that perhaps the most notable one was this Harshad Mehta, who's a a well-known broker who colluded with bank employees to manipulate the Bombay Stock Exchange. This one's crazy that something like that could actually happen. Um, Other uh, well-known scams involve a stockbroker engaged in circular trading, a top executive at the country's leading stock exchange uh, who utilized co-located servers to give traders a speed advantage, And one of the biggest financial scams in India involved a uh, former leading stockbroker who had over 10 million retail customers. To put that into perspective, TD Ameritrade has about 12 million accounts. So what you notice when you start reading through this stuff is that this isn't some criminal that's operating out of a dusty office somewhere in Mumbai. These are professionals who are creating huge scams that require a lot of people to get involved. I remember speaking with uh, some government officials in the Solomon Islands that were talking about the corruption there, and they said, uh, so what happens when somebody finds out that uh, the 14 of you are fleecing uh, the government coffers? And he says, well, then there's going to be 15 of us, right? So anybody that finds out just gets pulled in, and, and everybody wants to make some money. It's a poor country, right? So an article that you can read 
aptly titled piece, India's Lawless Financial Capitalism Fosters a Culture of Scams. I think this is behind a paywall. I read it for you. It's by Frontline. And it says here, scams have centered around malpractices in corporate governance. Owners and promoters of companies have defrauded investors to enrich themselves. So, and these go from the largest to the smallest company. So this is a landmine of systemic problems. And the highlights here is that The scams have become a pervasive aspect of business in India. Uh, He describes this as the perils of unregulated capitalism and the large-scale pilfering from state-owned banks further eroded public trust in financial institutions. This isn't just some reporter. This is Ashoka Modi. He teaches at Princeton University. He wrote a book titled, India is Broken, A People Betrayed Independence to Today. Probably an interesting read, but in this piece, he talks about how India has over 3,000 fintechs. It sounds quite attractive, right? But if you look here, one of India's largest fintechs, this Bharat PE, uh, facilitates peer-to-peer lending at high rates and it attracts subprime borrowers. So the company faced a mini-run when a former founder predicted a dire future for the company. And um, the uh, one of the other founders was dismissed after it was found that his wife and him were stealing company funds to live lavish lifestyles. That's the largest fintech in India. So uh, you need to be very careful. The key takeaways here... Indian investors should utilize the most reputable brokerage firms possible and then keep their fingers crossed. If scams are rife among governments and financial institutions, the same is true in all aspects of business. So as Juan suggested, we need to invest in a basket of stocks and not try to cherry pick anything. So Indian investors, of course, need to consider domestic bias. They should be allocating funds to countries and regions outside India, while a global equities investor ought to hold around 1.6% of their funds in Indian equities. Why such a low number? Well, before we talk about that, we're going to be doing some pieces on global investing that I think you'll find very interesting. And to be notified of when these pieces come out, click the subscribe button there. There's a little drop down. Click that and then click the black bell. And that will ensure that you're notified whenever we have new videos coming out. That also helps our channel because it surfaces our content. And when you watch it, it boosts us in the algorithms. Thank you for that. So let's talk about why India is a 1.6% allocation. If you squint super hard, you can see it here. This is a great infographic from MSCI, which shows the breakdown of global equities. If you took all the stocks in the world, what percentage would be from the United States? Well, 59.3%, 3.9% from the UK, and the list goes down, go down the list here. China at 3.3%. India, you can see here, we've broken out emerging markets. So of all the stocks in the world, 11.2% belong to emerging markets, places such as China, Taiwan, and Korea really aren't emerging markets. We've talked about why that is, but it's often challenged by institutional investors. But India here at 1.6%. That's what you ought to have allocated. Now, what investors are thinking like Juan is that they're more bullish on India and Schroeder's produced a 20-page report we came across. And unfortunately, we can't redistribute the report or contents, but it's an exceptional piece of research, although it's clearly pushing for an active investment product. But uh, it makes the case for an overweight India allocation. Uh, This picture is interesting. This shows uh, cows roaming the streets of India. You need to be careful if you're visiting there. I had a friend who was on the first several weeks of his six-month-long trip with his fiance, and one of these cows killed him, uh, charged him and killed him. So you need to be very careful when you're walking around the streets of India. 
Now, some interesting bits out of the Schroeder's report. Uh, India shares some similarities with the China growth story. It's the population and the migration into urban centers. Uh, They've been held back in a huge way owing to uh, what the report describes as a lack of retail savings. I wonder why. It's because they're being fleeced. And public investment, uh, which is expected to increase. The government is investing now, which should spur an increase in urbanization, leading to greater worker availability. And what's interesting is that India has outperformed China and the emerging markets over the past 20 years passively. So why Schroeder's is pushing their active product is uh, questionable. But um, there's lots of unicorns popping up there. So startups worth more than a billion dollars. Again, going back to that point about the biggest fintech and, and potentially the need to be really scrutinizing these companies. There's heavy digital penetration. Now, when it comes to the stock market, um, this is very interesting. Not all Indian stocks, even the largest ones, are in MSCI's India index because of foreign investment restrictions. And there's also some funky taxation rules going on for foreign investors that you'll need to pay attention to. Or if you're investing in an ETF, presumably they'll pay attention to that for you. But uh, somebody ends up uh, paying the piper, and uh, we're going to talk about that. So here's a look at the top India ETFs by assets under management. So that's the column there on the far right. You can see the iShares MSCI India ETF at $8 billion. That's the MSCI India Standard Index. It's large and mid caps. Then you have MSCI India Small Cap. You see that's another ETF and that only has around $790 million in assets. And then further down the list here, you see Franklin's FTSE India ETF Look at the trend or the expense ratio there. So it's 19 basis points. And then look at the expense ratios for iShares, MSCI India, 65 and uh, 79 for their small cap. So if you combined those two iShares ETFs, then you would get with appropriate weightings, MSCI India all caps. Now, MSCI India small cap, that's only 14% of the total. It has 465 equities while MSCI India Standard has 136. So that's a total of 600 companies. Now, Franklin's ETF only has 213 companies. That's because they're focused on only large and mid. So with such low fees, we were wondering if FLIN, the Franklin FTSE India ETF, can successfully track their benchmark. And interestingly enough, they can't. The problem here, when you look at, you're looking at the column on the further on the furthest right there, You see the FTSE India capped index, that's the index this ETF uses to track, is at 9.67% since inception. And then look at the market price return for the FTSE India ETF, 7.93. So uh, if we do the math there, that's 174 basis points difference. If you subtract out the 19 basis points in fees, then it's still a massive difference. Why? The problem isn't that they underperformed the benchmark. The problem is that they didn't come anywhere close to that benchmark, which means you're not getting the exposure that you're expecting. And we thought that was a function of their low fees. But then when you look at the iShares MSCI India ETF, they have a tracking error of 126 basis points minus expense ratio at 61, or at, let's say 65. So that gives them a 61 basis point net tracking error from their benchmark. 
basically, this means, and I worked in the world of indices, so this is intuitive to me, and perhaps I shouldn't be rambling so much about tracking errors. The idea is that if you're giving somebody money to track an index passively, you're paying them for that exposure, and typically you'd see a tracking error under five basis points, so very, very close to the index. I think the reason they're not able to achieve a very good tracking errors here is because they're working in a market that restricts foreign investment, and there's probably a, a, a fair degree of difficulty trying to replicate these returns. So when we look at the exposure you get from the iShares MSCI India ETF versus Franklin's India ETF, you see that they're roughly the same in terms of industry classifications. We would expect that to be the case, even though the iShares uh, MSCI uh, ETF has fewer constituents. Uh, they're still roughly the same when it comes to performance. So if you invest in the iShares ETF, consider adding some small cap exposure, maybe 14% of that position. We'd opt for the lower fee option from Franklin, to be honest. iShares doesn't have any incentive to reduce their fees. They're already the largest India ETF by far, so they'll probably keep those fees in place. Both of these ETFs have ginormous tracking errors. You just have to live with that. Avoid the temptation to focus heavily on historical performance here and just go back to basics. Lower fees are the single most important and accurate predictor of future performance. Now, my thoughts on India for what it's worth. I managed a team in Mumbai. I was asked to relocate there. I took this picture from that office. I wouldn't do it, I told my boss, for three times my salary. He said, why? I said, well, you go there and see for yourself. The infrastructure is absolutely dreadful. Hiring's pretty tough. They have a recipe-driven culture in terms of managing teams there. Everyone's a PhD. That means they're poor, hungry, and determined. They're also probably a PhD as well. They're all top of their class from top schools. Tough to find dynamism among candidates because most with charisma will have exited. And all my friends, Indian friends from B school, are certainly an exception to that, say an exception to the lack of ability to find dynamism. They were all very charismatic individuals. You can find some of the best food on the planet in India, and I plan to spend a lot more time there, even though their visa is one of the toughest applications I've ever seen. I don't find it more compelling than China, to be honest, and even uh, at, at the, in the best case, it might be as equally as compelling. So if it is, then invest in both, and that's why I would probably look for exposure in the Vanguard FTSE Emerging Markets ETF. You're paying a total of eight basis points. And 28% of your exposure is China, 21% India, so that's about half there. And if you add in Taiwan, that's 68%. Why is Taiwan an emerging market? Well, that's because if China coughs, then Taiwan's going to catch a cold. So just to conclude, systemic corruption and a culture of scams make India a very unique place. Certainly in other emerging markets, you'll see the same thing. That's why they're emerging, right? That's why there's a specific risk profile for countries like this. There's a compelling case, though, to overweight despite the risks, though cherry-picking stocks is a bad idea. Uh, passive fees are high enough, so I don't think you'd want to pay an active manager anymore. The Franklin ETF seems most compelling from where we're sitting because of those low fees, and certainly don't discount an investment in broader emerging markets. Now, we touched briefly on China in this presentation. If you're interested in our look at China, I spent a lot of time there and my perspectives are in this video alongside research that we've done. Watch that next. Please subscribe to our channel. Thanks so much for taking the time to watch this today. Thank you for listening to the Nanalyze podcast. If you found this information useful, please share this episode with a friend. This helps us to continue to provide thorough research for you. Want more research like this? Want to know what we're invested in and what stocks we're avoiding? 
Head to Nanalyze.com and consider becoming a premium annual subscriber to get access to premium articles, webinars, and our extensive tech stock catalog. Thank you for your time.